Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Is there anything I left out? No, I think that's it. I did sea salt yesterday in a rush. You know, so I don't. Uh, I, I would don't just say have it, it's junk accord with with quite a few littles. It's in everything. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, we have sea salt. So yeah. what? Yeah. Every the guy down the street has sea salt too. Like you don't have anything so great that I have to go to your store because everything. Pretty soon they're going to sell paintings with sea salt. You can lick the frame. The sea salt will be on it. Enough sea salt. The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. We have a special guest today. We're very happy Greg Garcia is in town, and Greg is sitting in with us. And by way of introducing Greg, I will read this from Mike Collins in Philadelphia. Hello, Mr. Tony and friends. I'll go ahead and combine two recent email trends and tell you an unsolicited story of an accomplishment I'm proud of and how it became a David Aldridge moment for me listening to your show. For that, for two memorable seasons in the early 2000s, I played basketball for the late, great Armand Gilliam. Yes, that Armand Gilliam. I believe he was at UNLV. Armand Gilliam was an All-American. At Penn State Altoona. One chilly evening in February 2003, I had the game of my life, scoring 37 points on 10 of 14 from three. The team that evening that couldn't stop or contain me, Frostburg State University. <laughs> so imagine my shock when I'm listening to your show 20 years after this one shining moment and I hear Greg Garcia mentioned as a famous alum. I haven't heard that school's name in two decades, much less know anyone that went there. I wonder if he remembers me as the game was broadcast locally on public broadcasting in Altoona. Five outlets, by the way. Love the show. Keeps me smiling every day. Mike Collins, Philadelphia. I don't think you know Mr. Collins. I'm not familiar with him, but <laughs> no. good for him. Yeah. Good for him. So tell us, first of all, you're in this area for a variety of reasons, but one of them has to do with Frostburg. Yeah, this past weekend, I, uh, I received the uh, Distinguished Alumni Award from Frostburg State. Distinguished is a stretch. Um, mm -hmm. When I accepted the award, I had my underwear on Inside Out because I had forgot to pack some to go up to <laughs> Frostburg. Uh, but yeah, I took my parents up there and, uh, and I got the award and it was, uh, it was a lovely, lovely evening. So yeah. Did you make a speech? I made a speech. I, I actually started off by saying that, uh, pointing out that I was a speech communications major at Frostburg. So if this stunk, they only have themselves to blame. Right. And, uh, and then, yeah, I talked about how uh, my parents, 35 years ago, drove me up to Frostburg to start looking at colleges. I was miserable in the back seat, and they were uh, talking about my future. And now we've come full circle because I drove them up there. My mother was miserable in the back seat, and we talked about my future because they were telling me all about the good places I can get a discount with my new AARP card. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then I talked about how um, I just applied to one place. You know, I, I applied there. I got in. I didn't feel like uh, doing that again. It was a hassle, filling out all that paperwork. And I said, whoa, whoa, Frostburg, they like me. I like them. Let's, uh, let's have a marriage here. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah. Oh, I loved Frostburg. It was great. I mean, the thing is, I took a television writing class at Frostburg at, on a whim. I was just sitting there with some guy getting ready to register for classes, and he goes, I said, I need three more credits. He goes, well, I'm taking this TV writing class, and it's hooked up with Warner Brothers, and you send in the script, and if they like it, they fly you to L.A. for like a little two-week internship on a sitcom. And I thought, I love TV shows. This is a contest. I need three credits. I'll take the class. And sure enough, I was one of two people, uh, somebody from American University and me, that got picked that summer to go there. And uh, that's obviously what I ended up doing for a living. I also met my wife at Frostburg State, and, uh, and uh, she's wonderful. So I often say, if I would have studied in high school and applied myself, I'd be miserable right now. This is an amazing story, that, that by a simple twist of fate you end up finding that thing that you wanted to do. You never would have done that. Never. Never would have thought in a million years. You would have been a phys ed I, teacher. I, who knows what I would yeah. have been doing. You know, I'd probably be working for my uncle's landscaping business right now. Or, or, but, but Tom Abbott, a guy named Tom Abbott, we were just sitting in line, and he said, hey, I'm taking this class. T complete fate. Complete luck. Did you, when you started that class, did you say to yourself, I sort of like this. I can do this, or or was it just I'm just taking this class? Doesn't mean anything. No, I was interested. It was like one of the you know you take a lot of classes. You're not interested in all of them, and and this was one where because I'd watched so much TV as a kid, I thought this is this is something I'm, I'm interested in. Even that though, 
the script was due on like a Monday. And Sunday afternoon, I hadn't even thought about what I was going to do. Right. And I took some, uh, some no-dose caffeine pills. I stayed up all night long. I wrote a Cheers spec script. We read it in front of the class the next day, and people were laughing. And I thought, well, this is amazing. But, but you had always been funny. You, you, you just I had been keep, funny. Been I'd, fun. I'd always been funny. I'd right. always been told to, to sit down and shut up in class yes. because I'm making jokes and whatnot. Yes. So I knew I was funny. I, I, I was confident about that. That was called the Kornheiser chair at one point, to sit down and <laughs> shut up in class. I actually, as an elementary school, they would put me back by the water fountain. In the first, second, third grade, it was like they'd give me like two, three weeks to try to behave, and then they'd put me back by the water fountain. By the time the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, day one, my seat was already there. <laughs> Word was out. And my uh, and my teacher would keep me back there, and then kids would come up and get a drink of water, and I knew I'd have like 10 seconds to right. like, you know, get yeah. some jokes in. But yeah, so I, I really, I didn't know how easily the whole story stuff would come. Jesse, Chester shut up. Chester loves this story. <laughs> shut up. Um, how easy this story stuff, but after watching sitcom after sitcom, I think I just kind of like uh, absorbed it, you know, to write the stories. And then so so the teacher gave me a bunch of notes on the on the script I wrote because that was the next part. You read it to the class, then you get notes. Did the teacher have any particular credential? No, that's okay. the thing. She okay. took a weekend class uh, in Baltimore. Uh, about this and then taught it to us. And she taught us the structure and everything, which was great. She was a nice woman. But she gave me these notes and they didn't make any sense to me. And she said, you know, I didn't think she'd ever really watch Cheers. I wrote a Cheers spec script. And so I didn't take her notes. And I made some changes based on laughs I didn't get on some parts. And I turned it back in and she said, you didn't take any of my notes. And I said, yeah, I, I know. I didn't agree with them. And she said, well, if I was the executive producer of a TV show and you work for me, you'd have to take my notes. And I said, yeah, but you're not the executive producer <laughs> of a TV show. And I said, look, this is going to go to Warner Brothers. I would always kick myself if I turned in something that I didn't believe in, and then I wouldn't know if I would have got in or not. So she gave me a C-. minus, um, And then I got in. And it was the worst thing ever for any network executive I've worked with ever since, because it was my first lesson not to really... Take Pay notes attention. and just, just do what you want to do. So when I was about, I was working at the New York Times, so I was probably in my mid to late 20s. I was approached, as were seven other people, by the company that later became Imagine uh, to say, why don't, you, why don't you turn in an idea for a movie? And, I, and they did it with journalists. I was working at the New York Times, and I turned in a terrible idea that I think I stole from uh, something I'd read in a comic book 15 years before. You know, a melodramatic, awful thing. But they promised that they would bring me to L.A., and they brought me to L.A. to meet. I don't remember. I've told you this story, haven't I, with my yeah, Uncle is, Boots? Is this the dinner story? Yeah, this is the dinner story. So um, they bring me to L.A., and, and I'm staying in L.A. at my Uncle Boots's house. He lives at 151 and a half South Camden Drive in Beverly Hills, okay. a house that I've always wanted to buy. Yeah. It's a block and a half from the Beverly Wilshire. Yeah. Block and a half. Sure. Love the area. So we're going to go out. I'm going to meet this guy whose name I don't remember. He was about 10 years older than I and, and probably made $50 million down the road. We're going to go out to dinner and we're going to go out to dinner at the very famous Ma Maison. Ma Maison, at that period of time in the late 70s, is the restaurant in Los Angeles, and it, it has an unlisted phone number. Okay, you you got to be somebody, know somebody, make the deal, work it to get into Ma Maison. I've read about Ma Maison. New York Magazine, which I used to read religiously, wrote all the time about Ma Maison and what a stunning achievement it is to eat at Ma Maison. Now, I'm going to Ma Maison. I'm really happy. Can't even get into Carbone, but you can get into Ma Maison. Can't get into Carbone. <laughs> Can't get into Carbone. So I'm going to go to Ma Maison, and before I go, my uncle says to me, uh, I'm going to give you a call. I'm going to give you a call. And I just look at him like, what? I'm sitting at a table. This is before cell phones. Cell phones don't exist. Someone has to bring over a telephone, the kind of telephones you see in television shows from the 70s, yeah. a big telephone with an elastic cord. They plug it in to an outlet near your table. Guy comes over with the phone and says, Mr. Kornheiser. I go, yeah. He goes, I got a call for you. I pick it up. My Uncle Boot says on the other end, just every once in a while, smile and laugh. You don't really have to say something. Say something like, yeah, here and there. It'll only take about 15 seconds. And I do exactly as he says. And then finally, I hang up the phone. And the guy looks at me like I'm a god. 
Now I didn't get the deal because my, you know, my idea stunk. <laughs> but he looked at me like I was yeah. a god. It was like right. It's, it's the most wonderful story. It's fantastic. I loved my uncle so much for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Well, you know, I, and I want to tell you this, too, because we talk about going from Frostburg to doing what I do. You know, uh, I decided I'm going to go out there. I'm going to try. I don't really know anybody. And Well, you were working at TEM. I was working at TEM, and there were two people, you and... Phil Melman? No, 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 not... There was Phil Wood or something. Phil Some, Wood was a I, sports guy. I think he knew somebody... That wrote for the show Dinosaurs, which was these big stuffed dinosaurs. I don't know it the was, show. It right. was terrible. I remember it well. And then you, and, <laughs> Do you? And, oh, yeah. And you knew Peter Melman. Yeah, I knew Peter Melman. Who was working on Seinfeld. And both of you <clears throat> were nice enough to say, hey, get in touch with, you know, send them your script. So I sent both of them my Seinfeld script I'd written at the time. And the guy from Dinosaurs said, call me on this particular day. And I was driving across country with my buddy on my way to Los Angeles. We were in Wake, no, we had Waco, Texas, I okay. think we were in, or Shamrock, Texas, even worse. And I called the guy, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I read your script. Uh, I don't think you got it. And I said, what? Yeah. <laughs> he said, I, I wouldn't come out here. And I said, I'm in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Little late. And, and, and they said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I don't, and that's all he said. And he was like a low-level writer on the show. And I hung up, and I was devastated. And my buddy said, are we turning around? I said, no, we're not turning around. So I get out to L.A., and Melman takes me to lunch at Arts Deli and sits down and gives me the most amazing notes. He's supportive. He's like, this is good. This is bad. This is, this is fantastic. This I would do here. And just filled, my, you know, filled me back up with air. And he was, he was outstanding. So that meant the world to me at the time. And now it's six or seven sitcoms later. Yeah. Like, you've done all of those. What are you doing now? I uh, just shot a show in Pittsburgh called Sprung. It's about three convicts who get out of prison because of uh, corona and uh, comedy. And it's uh, going to be on in August, I believe. Yeah. On uh, IMBD TV, which they're going to rename in May. It's owned by Amazon. It's their ad-based uh, service. Amazon is where you want to get into, right? I mean, Amazon rules the world. They were great. They were great. I mean, to, to me, they were great. It was the first time I've ever had a show where basically they just, they just said, here's the budget, go make your show. No, almost no interference whatsoever. It, and if they did have any notes, they were great. And if I didn't like their notes, they go, that's fine, do your show. It was amazing. I can't go, I don't know if I can go back to the regular uh, network. So kind of I think what that. people probably don't understand is that when they finally see something, it was done a long time ago, relatively speaking. It wasn't done last week or last month. It was planned for a while. And when something comes out, you're on to the next thing, right? Well, yeah, we'll see what happens with this show. If I, if I feel like there's a second season to tell or, or, or a variation of a second season to do. Um, but yeah, usually you're, jump, you're jumping into the next thing if you're not going to do the same show again. But yeah, this was shot in last fall. And because of the name change of this and relaunch of this network, it's even delayed a little bit more. Yeah. We could probably air it a little sooner, but it's going to be August. Okay. And so what has happened with Longwood? Oh, my good, my, the, the wood, the yeah. Lancers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I just randomly picked them, and that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, you, yes. did I did I tell you you didn't win? Oh what? no, you didn't win this year. No, you didn't. Oh, win. Oh, I haven't checked in on <laughs> yeah, it. That's, that's right. shocking. Yeah. Um, I uh, yeah, and then someone reached out to me on Twitter and asked if I'd uh, speak at the commencement, and I wish I could. I couldn't do it. It would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. I'd I'd written half my speech before my wife told us uh, told me that we were going to go on vacation that exact time. Well, maybe but, they'll uh, come back to you again. Uh, that would Longwood. be fantastic. I mean, I'm know. available. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no reason for them not to do that. Absolutely. I've told you this before. Um, every once in a while, I drop into Almost Famous when it's on TV, and I see, you know, uh, Jason Lee and from My Name is Earl. And I, I just, I, that's a wonderful movie. Oh, great. Almost Famous. Yeah. Great movie. You know, yeah. He was great in it. And uh, yeah, we did. You've actually... never written a movie. No, I tried one time. I had an idea, and this actor, uh, John Stamos, and I, we, yeah. we, we decided to write it together. He kept saying we should write a movie, and it took us about a year, and all we'd really do is meet on weekends and drink beer and order um, crabs from Maryland and eat those, <laughs> because yeah. we both liked that, and then... And then at the end of it, we gave it around to some people. MTV Films was kind of interested, and they gave us a bunch of notes and said, if you do these notes, you know, there's a chance we would do this. And then I think the next day, My Name is Earl got picked up, and I said, well, I don't have time to do this. Um, it's a movie's different than a television show. 
it's different, and I think my brain is programmed to come up with things that are longer than two hours. You know, I, with TV, it's like, okay, how can this sustain a hundred episodes? So, so when it comes to a movie, obviously you got to think about this is just one story. And for me, so far, I'm like, oh, geez, that's a lot of pressure. One story, what is it? And also, I've been so busy with TV that I haven't been interested in it. But I, I will tell you the other reason too is in TV, as the writer, you're in charge. You're in charge of everything. I mean, now I direct my own things as well, but if I'm not directing them, I'm still in charge. So whatever is in my head, I can get it as close to that on the screen as possible. Movies, you write it, you turn it in, you go see it at the theater. You know, yeah. The director is then in charge, and I'm a control freak, and I don't like that. Now that I've directed a bunch of episodes of TV, now I think I could write a movie and somebody would let me direct it. So it's, it's more interesting to me at this point, but I haven't uh, gone down that road and yet. And all of this is owed to Tom Abbott, and your deal with him, I assume, is if you ever go to jail, I will send the bail money? If Tom Abbott is out there, please get in touch with me. I haven't seen him in a long time, and I would love to, uh, I would love to buy him Do you think and- he knows that... That you've done this? I mean, I believe he, I believe so. Yeah, okay. I believe so. I just don't know. I, you know, I get, in, I stay in touch with a lot of Frostburg guys. In fact, I'm seeing 16 of them uh, on Thursday for a little poker and dinner and such. And, but Tom is somebody that uh, I keep asking, and, and, and people have lost touch with him. But I would love to see Tom Abbott again. Great. Great to have you. Thank I, you. I haven't seen you in a long time. I haven't seen anybody in a long time. Uh, we'll take a break. Um, Nigel, is it Barry next or is it Sands? Yeah, I believe it's Steve Sands will be next. Steve Sands from Augusta. Well, Barry will be from Augusta, too. It's an all-Augusta show except for what we just talked about. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. It's hard to be a little... On a Saturday, no TK show today, no TK show tomorrow. I threw eggs at Subarus and bought three eggs chairs. Installed Simply Safe in every room. Complained about the bears. What am I to do? I parked a trailer on my street just so I could look out and complain about it. I snuck up on a squirrel, whispered like cheesery, recited the famous folks from my hometown, Tristan Wirfs and me. 48 hours to kill, I'm too upset to cook. Maybe I'll curl up with some early, middle, modern Louise Gluck. My shades are drawn while outside, children somehow play. It's hard to be a little on a Saturday. The brilliant it's hard Dan Burton. to be a little on a weekend, my friend. Guess there's reruns from October. Nigel's going to the zoo, zoo, zoo. I count up all the outlets in my kitchen once again. Imagine what Saliza's eating. Hot roast, stew. There's no one to call a football game a match. I can't stand cottage cheese, but I've ordered up a batch. Check to see if my TP rolls from the top or down below. Cause on the weekend there's no Mr. Tony show. What the heck to do? Guess I'll have a beer. Come on, man. What are we even doing here? His mind is wild. You should get him to do songs for your shows. He's unbelievable. He's working with a friend of mine on something. He's unbelievable. And he hit everything in that song. It's just great. And he plays in Steve Sands. And before we get to Sands, we read this from George Foster from Markham, Ontario. Love the podcast. Listen to it now on Apple Podcasts because my lovely wife of 51 years, first date, April 10th, 
1965. It's coming up soon. Keeps on horning in on my Spotify account and kicking me out of your podcast. The purpose of this email is to ask you to congratulate Steve Sands on his interviews at the Valero Texas Open. Wow, Friday, Lee Trevino. Saturday, Ben Crenshaw and Tom Watson. The next best thing to golf royalty, and it's only Saturday. Plus, his interviews with the players are extremely good. Thank you. Sands, that's for you. Don't you feel good about that? Wow, that is very, very kind. Oh, Canada. Yeah. Thank you very much. much. All right, let's get to the news of the day. It's the news of every day in golf with Tiger. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most surprised. How surprised are you that Tiger's actually going to play in the Masters? Tony, with, with all due respect, it's your show, but isn't the lead story, and you were one of the great writers of all time, don't ever bury the lead, isn't the lead story Greg Garcia's NCAA brackets and how long we did and how all those teams did? <laughs> we did that. We did that in the open. We did that. Oh, we did? It yeah, we was did. literally the lead story. Yeah, You're right. Was, you're right. It was. You're it absolutely was. Just right. behind yeah. Phil's mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the Tony Kornheiser School of Journalism, they say never bury the lead. Yeah. There we go. Right. Now, what was the question, Tony? Sorry, I digress. <laughs> On one to ten, how surprised are you that Tiger's actually playing? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, Man, I, I thought he was going to start at St. Andrews because it's the shortest and the flattest uh, golf course of all the major championship venues. Um, but the more you think about it, you know, the more you realize that this is his best chance to win. It's it's the place where he knows every nook and cranny. Uh, yes, it's the hardest walking course of the majors, so undulating, very up and down the hills. Um, and I understand all that. But if he's going to say that he's healthy, um, which he says he is, and he's going to give it a shot. At the Masters, there are only 90-some players, really only 30 or 35 of them can win, probably 25 or 30. So of all the majors, I guess this one makes the most sense if he's okay to walk it, and, and that's still a big if. So the comparisons have to be to Ben Hogan. Um, nobody's right. old enough to really understand that. But Ben Hogan was 36 when he came back, won six of his nine majors after that. Tiger is 46, I believe. So it's not like we're going to see a second act in his career or a third act because we've already seen the second. But are those the legitimate comparisons to Hogan? There's nothing else, right? Or is it Alex Smith maybe? Yeah, I mean, maybe an Alex Smith just because it's the leg. Uh, and, we, and we've seen so many uh, videos and we saw the documentary on Alex Smith. And when yeah. Ben Hogan got in his car accident – and had to recover medicine and, and all the things that you did to recover back then were totally different. So maybe it's more analogous to Alex Smith, but in a golf sense, it's Ben Hogan, a car accident sense, it's Ben Hogan. And you're talking about one of the five guys in the history of the sport who has a career grand slam in Ben Hogan. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to me, it's more comparable uh, with Ben Hogan than it is with Alex Smith, but injury wise, it's more of an Alex Smith type situation. It's, it's fascinating, Tony. I mean, it is just incredible. You've been here before. I know Michael's been here before. There were more people on the grounds Monday. Yesterday, they had to wash away because of all the weather. They had to close the gates at 1055 in the morning. But, man, there were a lot of people here on Monday. And that's not because people are trying to get out of the house because of COVID. Um, this is because Tiger Woods was here, and and Tiger just gets so many people ratcheted up. It, it's it's remarkable to see what his reach is. For people who want to know transparency and all of that, we just had a momentary glitch and we lost Sands. And and what I was asking him was the Brooks Kepkas of the world and the Rory McIlroys of the world and the Justin Thomases of the world revere Tiger. It's almost like they hope he beats them at the Masters this year. So you've noticed that, right? How much they love Tiger. Oh, they love him so much, uh, Tony, and that, and that's because he's allowed them in. Um, you know, when he was in his heyday in the late 90s and in the 2000s, the early 2010s, you know, Ernie Els, Phil Mickelson, VJ Singh, Ratif Goosen, David Duvall, all, you name it, all the guys, they, he just beat their brains in it. It's, and he pummeled them uh, into the ground, and he didn't allow them to get to know him very well back then. This is a completely different generation. When he became an assistant captain in 2017, uh, at the President's Cup at Liberty National, the big, huge U.S. runaway over the international team. He got to know the younger guys 
Uh, you know, he's 46 years old. These guys are in their mid to late 20s, early 30s. They grew up with his poster on the wall. You know, me and Greg Garcia grew up with, like, you know, the Supreme Court poster on the wall with George Gervin and all the great basketball players. <laughs> These guys grew up with Tiger Woods' poster on the wall. Like, he had Jack on his wall. And now that he's gotten to know them and he's taken that kind of big brother fatherly figure, you know, these guys, not only do they, they don't want him to beat them, but they want to compete against him and careful what you wish for, because, you know, this guy knows what he's doing when he gets into contention. So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. You mentioned Phil Mickelson. Thank you for leading into this. Tiger, Tiger would have the spotlight even if Phil were playing, but Phil's not there at all. Is Phil a ghost in Augusta? Do people talk about him, or has Tiger's presence just obliterated that story? A little bit of both. Um, the Tiger presence has obliterated basically everything uh, other yeah. than the Masters actually starting tomorrow morning. Um, but, man, Mickelson not being here, Tony, is so bizarre. Um, I mean, you think of this place and you think of all the great champions and you think of guys like Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods, those kinds of people. Last night was the champions dinner. It is the single most difficult reservation to get in all of sports. It's the most exclusive dinner you can possibly fathom. Mickelson is a modern day Arnold Palmer, three masters titles. He is revered on these grounds. He is so beloved here, Tony. And for him to not be here is bizarre. For him to not be here competing is bizarre. For him to not be at the Champions Dinner last night, only two guys who were alive were not there last night. Phil Mickelson, who won the Masters. Phil Mickelson and Angel Cabrera. And Angel Cabrera's not here because he's in prison down in South America because he got into a lot of trouble. So Mickelson was a massive omission. Uh, It is really strange. Uh, that people are not really talking about him a lot. Um, but maybe that's because of the Tiger thing. But, you know, you don't talk about things that are not happening. So he's kind of out of sight, out of mind, which is really strange because of his relationship with the club, uh, his stature in the game. It, it's it's a very odd feeling not having competing. Do you think we'll see him again playing? Man, I don't know. We, we were talking – were we texting back and forth about this? Time? I forget, but what – I don't know what his on-ramp is. Uh, You know, he'll get in his own way if he does. Uh, And next month at Southern Hills, the PGA Championship, the next major championship, he's the defending champion. It was the best story of the year in golf, a top-five story in sports. He became the oldest major champion in the history of the sport, and it's Phil Mickelson. It wasn't like it was some random guy. And... I cannot imagine him not defending his title next month at Southern Hills in Oklahoma, but I don't think he's going to be there, Tony. I think I think he is kind of vaporized right now. I don't think he wow. is anywhere to be found. Uh, and if he doesn't want to be found, he doesn't have to be. He has the means to do that kind of thing. I don't know when he's going to reemerge. I don't know how he's going to reemerge. But I, I'm guessing at some point he does. But then... Someone mentioned me yesterday or two days ago, Matt Lauer. Completely different scenarios. Nobody is comparing uh, the two situations. Except, has anybody seen Matt Lauer in 15 or you know, 10 years? You know, it's like these people will just go away, and it's bizarre. Again, I'm not saying that right. one thing is compar- comparable to the other as far as what they did or what they said. But, you know, Phil could just go away and never play again, which I... Think would be crazy, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not. Sure, I'm not quite sure what his on ramp is back into the public foray because he's going to have to speak, Tony. And when he speaks, he might get himself in some trouble again. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let me get back to Tiger with the question. Not the question. Can he win? Because nobody would say he could win. But can he contend? Can you? Can you see Tiger? Make well. You know, uh, being at par. Can you see him being a par shooter on day one, day two? Tony, I, I, I genuinely think he could win if he gets himself really? off to a decent start tomorrow. Here's why: Augusta did him a favor. Uh, they did him a solid, as they as they should, and as we all thought they would. Uh, he's going to play early and then late. He's going to have a lot of time in between his first and second round to recover. Uh, do I think he's going to make it seventy-two holes? 
unscathed? No. But, again, this isn't the easiest major to win, per se, but numbers-wise it is, and he doesn't have to beat that many people, and he knows every single nook and cranny of this golf course, man. He once told me something that I always found fascinating. At Augusta, more than anywhere else, it's not as important to know where to hit it as it is to know where not to hit it. And most of these guys don't know where not to hit it. He does, and he has that knowledge. He willed himself to that win in 2019. Got a lot of help from Francesco Molinari and Brooks Kepka and Xander Shoffley, but that's what happens at Augusta. There's less oxygen on that golf course than any other place in the world. And when you start thinking about sliding that green jacket through your arms, you know, things can go a little crazy. And Tiger doesn't allow that to happen. So if he gets off to a decent start tomorrow morning, I'm not saying he's going to, but if he does, look out, man. There's no question he can get it done around here. He's hitting the ball well. He's playing well. The only problem is the walking. If he can handle the walking, if he can, you know, not put himself in a position where he's going to really, you know, put some strain or more strain on that right leg, Tony, I, I think for sure he can contend. He's not here as a celebratory golfer, Tony. You and I have talked about this for years. He yeah. is not someone who just wants to be celebrated and cheered. He only plays when he thinks he has a chance to win, and I think he genuinely thinks he has he has a chance to win uh, because of all the work he's put in at home behind the scenes. No one's seen him play except a couple of friends of his. And he says he's playing great, and you have to take him for his word. It'd be amazing. It'd be the best story ever in the oh, history man. of golf. It would, it be. would There's be. There's no question. Thank you, Steve. Enjoy. Talk to you soon. God, Tony, you'd be good. Steve Sands, boys and girls. Do you think he can contend? So you're saying there's a chance? Yeah. Do you think he can contend? Yeah, he'll be as, as succinct as Tiger. I do. Well, I would, I'd be amazed. I mean, I would love it, but I'd be amazed. Right, we'll take a break. We'll go right back down to Augusta with Barry's Verluga, but we got more to talk with Barry and not just the Tiger part. I'm Tony Kornheiser. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Is this a ukulele, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is this Don Ho? I hope it's not Don Ho. It's the Silent Critics. They're a group that sends us their songs all the time. This is called Tracks. Ukuleles are fun. Well, that, That's a voice. Yeah, this is a real voice. I forget yeah, the ukulele. This is a real voice. Michael, if people like the Silent Critics want to send us their original music the way Dan Byrne does, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And again, now that it is April, we have the new promo code for you for, through Johnny O. TK Cheese for all your 4% large curd needs, or maybe you want to try out that pimento cheese. So... Greg is wearing Johnny O, the hat and the shirt. That's, yeah, we decked out. You're yeah. like an ambassador head, for head, Johnny O. Man. Head to toe, big yeah, fan, big really fan good. of Johnny really O. Good. Barry's Verluga joins us. We just had Steve Sands in Augusta. We got Barry's Verluga in Augusta. How excited are you uh, uh, about Tiger? I mean, I can't imagine. If you're writing a column, you just cannot write anything other than Tiger. I don't care if somebody shoots 58. You have to, you have to go with Tiger, don't you? I mean, you got to, and Tony, you'd appreciate this. Like, you're waiting for the tea times to come out, and the last thing you want is Tiger on Thursday with, like, a 2 p.m. tea time that suddenly puts right. you on deadline, right? So right. 9.41 or 10.41, whatever it is in the morning, is perfect. And it is. It's just it's amazing, and it's kind of what I wrote this morning, that, you know, we're 25 years from his seminal win here, the 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 groundbreaking win is the first of his 15 majors, the first of his five masters. And it's striking to me that at 46 and, and 25 years beyond that event, 
he's not looking for behind at it. We're not looking behind at it. We're wondering what's next. And we're wondering what's next for somebody that has like rods and bolts and plates and screws in his, uh, in his leg. Um, I mean, I think for anybody else, and I don't know what Sand said, but I think for anybody else, you know, you'd be thinking, well, you know, wow, making the cut is uh, a victory, or how's he going to do this? Even walking this is going to be a lot. And what Tiger has taught us is that um, for him, expectations and possibilities are, are different. They just are. Um, that doesn't mean he will contend this weekend, um, but it does mean that it's not absurd to let your mind go there. And so he just becomes... I think there's a greater distance between Tiger Woods' importance to his sport and the next most important person to his sport than there is between anybody else who's in that position and the next most important position in that sport, if that makes sense. He's just, for a quarter of a century, he has been the lone driver uh, in a way that is amazing considering it's not just been... 25 years of sustained excellence, it's been, over the past a dozen years, peaks and valleys that you couldn't have possibly imagined, um, and yet here we are, two, you know, the day before his 24th Masters, and, and he's the singular storyline. Yeah, it's personal drama. It's not just athletics. It's off the field as well. Everything that happened to him you know, with his marriage, with his press conference about that, with the accident, with the comebacks, with all of that stuff. Sands said he could win, Barry. Sands just told us he thinks Tiger could win. I can't bring myself to think that. You watch more golf than I do. Can he win? Well, I mean, if Sands says so, it gives me the freedom to kind of you know, go where maybe I think I shouldn't go. I mean, here's what I would say, Tony, and you would agree with this part, that it's less absurd to say that here than it is anywhere else. Yeah. Now, yeah. I say that with the caveat of, um, you know, this is a hard walk. You've been here, you've walked it. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not trying to say that, that playing four rounds of golf on four consecutive games, the days is like playing four NFL games on four consecutive days. But for a 46-year-old man who um, has a rebuilt leg and has also had five back surgeries, um, this is hilly. There's nothing. There's no even footing. Um, it's a four-and-a-half-hour, if you're lucky, trudge every day. So that's a limiting factor, perhaps. But I think where Steve is probably coming from, and I think – where if you allow your mind to go there, where you have to base your, your, your thoughts in, is he just knows every shot, and he knows it. Yeah. Um, he knows where to put it and what it'll do, and that doesn't mean he can execute it every single time, but there are going to be no surprises for, for him. And so when he won in 2019, he played some really good golf. Just it, He physically... Can he has clubhead speed? He's strong enough. He's long enough. He can do all that. But he won because he managed it better. He did not put his ball in the water at number twelve. He calmly hit it to the center of the green on Sunday and two putted and made par. While everybody else met disaster. I think if he does put himself in contention, it will be in an opportunistic way because he manages things so well and he thinks so well. It'll be less about the 25 years ago just physically overpowering anybody or everybody. Um, it's just it's crazy that we're talking this way because he hasn't played uh, in 17 months. But it's also the reason why he just attracts the eye because he's the only person who could pl not play for 17 months. And you say, well, he's, he's maybe he has a chance. It's such a great time this week to be a sports writer. You had the final four. You have Tiger at the Masters. You have the beginning of baseball season. I'll just ask this one other question about Tiger. He's paired with Joaquin Neiman and Louis Oosthuizen. Neither of them are young American stars or anything like that. What do you think of that pairing? Is that advantageous to Tiger? Is it, you know, did thought go into that particular pairing? I was surprised that it was kind of you know no other real 
star in it. Um, and yeah. maybe they're just uh, trying to spread things out. Ustazen's very accomplished. He won an Open Championship at, at St. Andrews, and he's contended at Augusta uh, before. But it, but it, you know, it kind of read as a little bit of a blah pairing. Now, there are other, you know, if, you, if you're watching Thursday afternoon, and I don't have this T-sheet in front of me, but it's after Tiger's done, there's a litany of stars um, playing Thursday afternoon. I mean, just gangbusters of, of, of Rory and JT and all the, all the, you know, the other kind of sub-leading characters. Um, and then you'll get on Friday afternoon, as you, you know, slip into the weekend, you'll get Tiger either, you know, grinding to make the cut or trying to move up the leaderboard. Or, I mean, Tiger on a, at Augusta on a Friday afternoon – Going into a spring weekend, um, I, it's just it just sets up to be yeah. so yeah. much fun. That's how ESPN makes the money to pay Joe Buck and Troy Aikman because they'll get the highest rating of any live sports event other than football they've ever done. I think. Well, let I me mean, say, I just think. Let me say one other thing, Tony. It's no accident that Tiger has an early tee time on Thursday. Right. That's what Sands was saying. Time. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. They recovery the most time to recover. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let me move on to things. Uh, Kansas uh, is the champion. I, we all understand that. You're a Dukie. You, you went to Duke. And whether you identify or not with Duke as, as a writer, you identify spiritually and internally with Duke. And Carolina beat you twice. These are lifetime achievement games. Last game in Cameron for Mike. Last game ever for Mike. Carolina did that. How? How do you feel about that, having gone to Duke? Well, I mean, I would, I would say um, I kind of view this through my conversations through both my Duke friends, and, and I have a lot of Carolina friends, people I know there, um, having covered that beat, and, and you know, just people yeah. you just know in life who went to Carolina. Um, and I, the way that I think both sides emerge from this is if – Carolina has won the third most games in college basketball history of any program. Only, only Kansas and Kentucky have won more. It is, I think, inarguable that two of the most significant five wins in Carolina history occurred over the last month. Um, yeah. And, and it is, uh, and, and it's amazing to me, and I know Hubert Davis didn't feel this and fought against it, and the kids probably didn't feel it, like that there was a letdown from Saturday to Monday, but the number of Carolina people I have talked to who, who said, you know what? Monday was fine. Saturday mattered. We have Saturday yeah. forever and ever and ever, and we can lord it over Duke people forever and ever and ever. And if there was any way to take an edge off of the satisfaction of Mike Krzyzewski reaching his 13th Final Four breaking the tie with John Wooden for most Final Fours ever. The only way to make that feel insignificant or, or you know, stripped of any joy would be to lose to Carolina in the Final Four. And not only lose to Carolina, I mean, there's a little bit of an edge that, you know, Duke was the favorite, Duke was the two-seed, Carolina wasn't supposed to be there, all of that sort of thing. Um, that mattered. And then, Tony, just in the arena – and these are the conversations I've had with both Duke and, and Carolina people. Um, you kind of, you know, two months ago, I could have had a beer with a Carolina or a Duke friend and said, you know what, what would it be like if Carolina and Duke met in the Final Four? And I think the picture that we would have drawn, drawn up, the, the emotions that we would have drawn up, would have been exactly what played out in New Orleans on, on Saturday night. Um, there was an energy, but more than that, an edge, an anxious edge in that, in that building. Um, Final Fours are always loud. This wasn't louder, but the, you could, there was a palpable angst because the, the ramifications for losing that game for either side, and particularly for Duke, was just enormous. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that my, my seat was um, on the, happened to be on the side near where the Duke students were. And so I walked off the court, or away from the court after the game to, to go file, and I'm walking through these throngs of, um, of 20- and 21-year-old kids, and you've never seen a more distraught, ashen-faced, wow. 
group of kids whose the blood was just drained out of their faces, and they're they're staring at was supposed to be a night of celebration in New Orleans, um, and now they're going to be out on the streets confronted with these joyous Tar Heel kids of their same ages, nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide. Um, all the emotions in that game for those fan bases, just, just an amazing sporting event. You would have felt that same way if you were still in school, right? You would have had oh, to feel Lord. that way. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have it, to. Yeah, I traveled to Final Fours when I was in, in as, when I was a student and, and sat in the stands. And, and you know, they, they happened to win two of those in 91 and 92. And, and um, just the, the community and, I mean, it just, so I, I understand that look. I didn't feel that look. I understand that look. A baseball starts will probably be rained out tomorrow in Washington. Um, Scherzer is not going to pitch against the Nats in opening day, which is good. So I don't want to really see that. But let us talk about the the Nats are we're at the bottom, right? I mean, there's the Nats. Is there a Soto strategy? Is there something to keep this guy? Because you look at the roster right now. You look the other day when two guys gave up ten earned. Two guys in the same game, they gave up 29 runs total, and two guys gave up 10 earned, and you say, well, there's no real hope this year. Is there hope, or, or am I, I don't think there's any hope this year, do you? Well, no, I mean, it, it depends on how you frame hope. There's not hope to win a division title, I, I, I don't right. think. I mean, that's a, that's a stretch. Um, you know, I think you have to, and this, this applies to the Washington Nationals this year, but there are other sports and other fan bases that it applies to in all sorts of years. Um, this fan base has to be willing to transport itself back to 09, 2010, 2011-ish and, and pick and choose characters uh, and storylines that, that give you hope, not necessarily for this summer, but for summers to come. Um, and that's, that can be a hard thing to do for a fan base that for a decade was told you're going to have a contending team and, and more years than not, many more years than not. You had a contending team. You certainly, coming out of spring training from 2012 to 2020, thought, okay, this, this group can, can contend. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big psychological adjustment. Um, I would say, yes, there is a long-term strategy with Juan Soto, and that is that the front office wakes up every day thinking, how can we take a step closer to getting this done? Um, keep in mind that, well, Soto's impending free agency kind of looms over the franchise. It's not at the end of this season. It's not at the end of next season. It's at the end yeah, of three, three seasons. seasons from now. So that's right. So I, I, it is an enormous and the the most important issue facing the franchise. Can they keep who I think is inarguably the best player in franchise history and make him a national for life? That matters more than anything. But I. I would caution people to not lose the joy of watching this guy, not just for this summer, but for three summers to come, um, because he's he's different. He's um, he's doing stuff that that people his age um, haven't done. So he represents a reason to turn on the the television every night. And then I would say, you know, you're looking at you want to identify as Josiah Gray they, and Kiebert Ruiz, the pitcher and the catcher they got in the deal for. Trey Turner and Scherzer from the Dodgers. Like, are they the guys that are going to carry the franchise forward? I think there's, you know, there's fun in discovering whether that's possible. Um, are they going to lose 90 games? I, I think they're going to lose 90 games. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean over the course of that you, you can't find um, enjoyment. And that's not sticking up for the franchise. It's a process that, that so many teams go through, and it's a, a hard thing when you've won a lot. Um, but I do think there's, there's fun within some of the losing. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the Masters. Enjoy being out there. I mean, the whole sports world in America is focused on that. They really are. It's really cool. Thanks, Barry. Appreciate it, Tony. Thanks very much. Barry's Verluga, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, 
interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. It's otherworldly. I it's feel, like Atlantis. I feel You're like underwater, I should, yeah, right? I feel like I should be in a robe waiting to be called for my massage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally otherworldly. I'll be By thinking Jeremy of this Vint. as I drive through the Occoquan later this morning. <laughs> it's just tremendous. Think of that. I mean, it'll, it'll, it's calming. It's soothing. It's, it's Atlantis. I got a 141 tea time this Friday. Yeah. Rounding out, of, rounding out of four ball. You do. You do. You do indeed. Uh, Nigel, do the Bethesda Bagels ad. Yes, Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. All you need to do Michael is... Michael doesn't go- want me to slip him the uh, day-old bagel from yesterday. <laughs> you do misdirection, you get me looking one way, then you give me the old onion bagel. Yeah. Go ahead. Just, go, just go to com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. That'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me say, rolling down Imperial Highway, big nasty redhead on my side. Santa Ana winds blowing hot from the north, and we were born to ride. Roll down the window, put down the top, crank up the Beach Boys, baby. Don't let the music stop. We're going to ride it till we just can't ride it no more. That's like 30 years old, maybe 40 years old at this point. Randy Newman. Randy Newman's brilliant. I mean, he's been nominated for like 20 Academy Awards for his yes. music, and he's won three or four. Thanks to our guests today, Steve Sands, Barry's Verluga, and it's written here, Board Op Emeritus Greg Garcia. Thanks as well to today's sponsor, Solo Stove X Chair, Simply Safe. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I was looking for all mentions of sea salt in uh, Matsuyama's Champions Dinner last night. Thought it might be on that Wagyu <laughs> porterhouse. <laughs> From Cheve in Somerville, Mass. Please note the sea salt on the ice cube in this cocktail that was brought to me on Friday. Did not expect sea salt in my drink. It really is everywhere. And I hold this up for people watching on News Channel 8. From Travis Marlin in Des Moines. You're right that sea salt is terrible. It's one notch above basic iodized table salt. If you want a good one, try Redmond Real Salt. Have Nigel buy one off a customer at the Safeway. The salt has intense and nuanced steak. T- taste, rather. Plus, it comes from a mine in Utah. So no one is going to overmarket that. From Joe Pearson in Indianapolis. Wait till Tony hears about smoked salt. I can't wait. What is smoked salt? I don't I mean, even know. Never. Do you like sea salt? It's I, on everything. I like all salt. I have yeah. three. Di- I have three little dishes of salt by my range. Is that you, right? Yeah, it would, t- it would annoy wow. you. I heard you guys talking about grilling. Have you? Do you have a sous vide? Is anybody we do. using the sous vide? So Dad used okay. to have a sous vide. I took it to my house. Yeah. It's amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, restaurants use that all the time. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, they, it's, everything is ready, and then you put it on for two minutes. You or have something. to finish it on the grill, or it looks like you pulled a liver out of a cadaver. <laughs> right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From Sam Davidson, there. Are, <laughs> They're widely acknowledged to be five distinct flavors. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. I believe you have discovered a sixth. Fe, not to be confused with salty. I contend that fe is a hallmark of many Eastern European cuisines. Here's a, um, a haiku from Shad. There's nothing that says have a mouthful of ocean like adding sea salt. From Robert Berg, the incomparable Robert Berg in Columbia, Maryland. I have, I have been wanted by the police on three occasions. The first occasion was during the Great Bunny Hunt of 1988. This was an event where teams of idiotic teenagers competed to see whose squad could steal the most Easter decorations from their fellow citizens' yards. These troops of morons drove all over Hopewell Township in the city of Aliquippa, home of Mike Ditka, Ty Law, 
Daryl Revis, Tony Dorsett, Henry Mancini. Well, we're not doing that game anymore. But suffice it to say that when you're driving the car, you are the moron who is most likely to get busted, which I did when someone called in my plate. My parents were not amused. The second occasion was when a different idiotic friend and I were driving past a park at midnight. The park was closed, but for some reason, two sober 22-year-olds felt an irresistible urge to use the swing set that was visible from the road. What we did not know was that a policeman who lived in the park with his family was heading out to work on the graveyard shift, and he was not amused. The final occasion involved a manhunt. The same idiot friend from episode two and I were driving around with a mutual friend and said idiot found a toy gun in the back of the car and was pointing it at people as we drove through residential neighborhoods. By sheer dumb luck, we managed to elude the multiple roadblocks erected on all the main arteries of the town. When we got back, our... When we got back home, our friend's father informed us we needed to take the toy gun to the station and give statements or all hell was going to rain down on us. Rain down on us. Anyway, that's my history of run-ins with the law. Rack me. From Anthony Garcia. Any relation to you, Anthony Garcia? It's my cousin. Okay. <laughs> Riding the youthful petty crime mailbag wave here, when I was about 9 or 10 years old in the early 90s, I tagged along with my dad on a grocery shopping trip at the local King Cullen. Strolling along the aisles, I saw a jar of Grey Poupon. It stared back at me like a crystal skull in an Indiana Jones movie. At the time, the Grey Poupon commercials had me convinced it was a significant status symbol. So on a whim, I swiped a jar into my jacket pocket. My father paid for our groceries, and I left with the ill-gotten Grey Poupon without saying a word. Back at home, I marveled at the jar in my room, continuing to equate it with some sort of condiment caviar. The more I held it, the more I expected a power to begin transferring to me. After a few days in my contraband drawer, I realized I couldn't just hold on to it forever. I went to the kitchen, put it on our family fridge, in our family fridge, without anyone seeing me. Later that night, my mother discovered the jar, and with the money being a little tight at the time, called out to my father as to why did he buy Grey Poupon. My father, having no idea, was just as clueless. The exchange went back and forth as to spending money unnecessarily, and was my dad lying about not getting the mustard? Did an aunt and uncle bring their own condiments to stick it to us, etc.? All the while they were discussing the mystery mustard, I was dead focused on the TV and no way getting involved. It was so confusing and perplexing to my parents that the resolution they came up with was to throw the gray poupon away. I scurried to the living room window to watch my dad walk to the curb, open the trash can lid, and then pause. He looked down at the jar for a second, perhaps a last-ditch effort to wonder what was going on, and shook his head while letting the jar fall into the can. Decades after that day, we've never talked about it, and I hope my dad is not listening to today's show whenever this is read, as he is an occasional little. That's a really good story, isn't it? That's a really good story. From Frank Lynch in Park City, Utah. Thanks so much for the great episode of Shoe Talk today. It turns out my daughter's horse needs new shoes. While he has a contract with Nike, I'm thinking foot joy for the support, thanking foot joy for the support and comfort. I don't want a Zion situation when he tries to jump over the first gate, hoping that you and Michael can help me weigh the pros and cons. So this was when we talked about Tiger. Yeah, T-Dubs wearing the foot joys. Yeah, he was not wearing Nike. Old classics. And one more from Gus in South Glens Falls, New York. Your repeated longing for coffee ice cream from Baskin Robbins brought back memories of my first job four decades ago. Another place that had great coffee ice cream, Howard Johnson's Restaurant. Great. Pale coffee ice cream. Fabulous. In my case, I worked at several of them during my high school and college years in South Glens Falls, Queensbury, and Lake George, New York. Queensbury is in Vermont. Didn't we play a course in Queensbury? Uh, I'll defer to you. I think we did. I think we played one. The coffee ice cream was wonderful, but my favorite was their mocha chip. I also recalled fondly one of the supervising managers that would travel to each of the franchise restaurants, a lady named Elise Ray. She could be quite tough, but I got along fine with her. Eventually, her daughter, who was a few years younger than me, also started working at restaurants. You might know of her, Rachel Ray. And yes, she talked a lot back then, too. I am aware of Glens Falls because my roommate in college, David Carpenter, lived in Glens Falls, New York. Barry Melrose, I believe, lives in Glens Falls, New York. It's beautiful. Is this the course we played in August and it was freezing? In northern, absolutely northern Vermont, Queensbury, right near the Canadian border. Yeah, yeah. I assume he's talking about Queensbury, Vermont, because South Glens Falls would be I think I hooked a ball on the first hole there. You what? I hooked a ball off the tee. How can you remember that? Still looking for it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm going to play golf in the cold today, which is not normally what I do. But uh, I'm going to do it since I'm on the East Coast. And I don't even keep score anymore. I no. just draw, I draw little faces. A smiley face for a par. <laughs> a frown for a bogey. I do a little winky face uh, when I cheat yeah. in the hole. And I played with this one guy about uh, six months ago. And he looked at our scorecard at the end of the day. And he said, well, I got a 92. And you might be autistic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where are you playing? 
Pleasant Valley, wherever that is. I don't know. I'm going with my uncle and my cousin. Sounds Wonderful. nice. Wonderful. Yeah. Have a good time. I will. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. We're not going to be f***ing this year. <laughs> We're the Stanley Cup champions. Yeah. It's hard to be a little on a Saturday. No TK show today, no TK show tomorrow. I threw eggs at Subarus and bought three X chairs. Installed Simply Safe in every room. Complained about the bears. What am I to do? I parked a trailer on my street just so I could look out and complain about it. I snuck up on a squirrel, whispered la cheeserie, recited the famous folks from my hometown, Tristan Wirfs and me. 48 hours to kill, I'm too upset to cook. Maybe I'll curl up with some early, middle, modern Louise Gluck. My shades are drawn while outside, children somehow play. It's hard to be a little on a Saturday. It's hard to be a little on a weekend, my friend. Guess there's reruns from October. Nigel's going to the zoo, zoo, zoo. I count up all the outlets in my kitchen once again. Imagine what Saliza's eating. Hot roast, stew. There's no one to call a football game a match. I can't stand cottage cheese, but I've ordered up a batch. Check to see if my TP rolls from the top or down below. Cause on the weekend there's no Mr. Tony show. What the heck to do? Guess I'll have a beer. Come on, man. What are we even doing
some shots Whiskey preferred But it matters not It's cold in this room It's colder outside 